uh, obviously, uh, he's been an influence and, and a friend in, in my life. But, but to then share him with the staff, and, and as, as God has used him, he actually works in the corporate world as a profiler, and, and he worked with our staff, and he's influenced not just our staff, then beyond that to our leadership teams and, and different things, and, and now today to our men. Uh, Steve's influence in our church seems to be rising every time he comes, and that's why I'm glad you're here tonight, so that he can speak into your life. Would you welcome Steve Sisler as he comes to minister? Is everyone? You sound like you're all dying of a disease. <laughs> this just gives me a little more room. Uh, okay, well, you can open your Bibles to First Samuel chapter five. Uh, I'm Steve. Uh, I guess. How many of you know me a little bit? Okay. Um, you know, I guess I'm, I'm not your typical preacher. Um, so beware, buyer beware. <laughs> um, but I love people. Um, I, uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm really happy to be here. I, I love you, Daryl, with all my heart, man. You're, you're, you're really becoming a really good friend to me. Uh, Holy Spirit, come, huh? Um, I've got so much that I want to say. I could, I just could talk till morning, but I, I can't. So um, I'm going to do my best to kind of give you some snapshots about some of the things that have been really on my heart as of late. I tend to speak in themes, like every year I have this theme that I'll have, and that's what I, I, I'll just run in that vein until I just mine all the gold out of it that I can find. And I'm on a theme again this year. Um, is this too loud? Is this okay? Okay, it sounds odd to me. Um, this morning we talked about influence, and I wanted to share a little bit of that with you. Um, some snapshots of what we talked about. I spoke for two and a half hours, so I'm just pulling some bits and pieces out of it. Um, let me just describe the word influence and what it means. And what I want to do is I want to, uh, I'm inviting you to think about new and creative ways to be like Jesus. I'm inviting you to dare and risk maybe some of the things you've never thought about. And I want to share some of those with you and, you know, challenge you into another position in your life to where it's no longer safe. The word influence means the process of producing compelling effects on the actions, opinions, and the behaviors of others. I want you to think about that. The process of producing compelling effects on the actions, opinions, and behaviors of other people. I want to read you just a small story here in Samuel 1, Samuel 5, and a little part of 6, where 
the Ark of the Covenant. Has anybody ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark with Harrison Ford? Um, what I love about movies, you can just, they do Bible stuff and you can just ref refer to the movie and you're like, oh, I remember what that looked like. It's pretty close to the description that we've got in the Bible. But um, Raiders of the Lost Ark talked about the Ark of God, the, the Ark of the Covenant. But here in the scriptures, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and uh, the people that stole it wished they hadn't uh, after they got it. And I'm going to talk about that right here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 5. I'm just going to start kind of into the, in this story a little bit. The ark was in Ashdod, and then they went to Ekron, and then they wanted to get rid of it and get it over to Beth Shemesh. So some crazy words, but it's a fun story. Verse 9, chapter 5, But after they had moved it, talking about the ark, the Lord's hand was against the city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city with both young and old, an outbreak of tumors. Um, and so, you know, some translators uh, call these, pardon my English, but hemorrhoids. Um, so you can see nobody was sitting down in Ekron. Um, so they had this outbreak. So they sent, you know, the Ark of God to Ekron, and the Ark was entering Ekron. The people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel unto us to kill us and all of our people. So they called together all the rulers and the Philistines and said, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place. And so you hear the cries of the people. We don't want this. We want to get rid of this. And so Ashdod had some issues. And then they watched CNN. And so when it got to Ekron, they already knew it was going to happen um, because they saw the run on Preparation H they had over there. They didn't want it in their city. So they got rid of this thing, and the way they did it is so compelling. And, the, and what happened when they did it this way, it teaches us a really big lesson, and I want to talk to you about it. Verse 1 of chapter 6, When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. In other words, we've got to succeed or we're all going to die. That was their mentality. And so they came up with a plan, and I'm going to cut to the chase and get to the plan so I can get on to some other things. Verse 7. Now then, this is what the diviners came up with. Build a new cart, verse 7. Get it ready with two cows that have never calved. I mean, that have, that have recently calved. And have never been yoked. Do you know... Are you getting the picture here? Do you know what that means? You got two cows, mommy cows, they just had babies and they've never worn a yoke. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to put a yoke on a cow that's never had one and we're going to stake their babies away from them. And then what we're going to do is we're going to pen up the calves. It says in verse 7 towards the end. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in the chest beside it put all the gold objects you're sending back with him as a guilt offering. They're trying to appease the God of Israel. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. Key phrase. If it goes up on its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It's just a coincidence. Now, they take two cows, just had babies, 
They take the babies, they put them in a pen over here, and they pen them up, and then they put yokes on their necks that they never had on them before, and they put the Ark of God on the cart, and they say, I want you to go to Beth Shemesh's house, and I don't want you to go to the left or to the right, I want you to go straight there. Now, how many think that's going to happen? Okay, that's not going to happen, because by nature, the diviners must have been, you know, anthropologists, I don't know, they're, 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 they're figuring out this is an impossible situation. So they want to know if God is in this thing or not. And look at what happened. So they did this. They took the two cows, hitched them up to the cart, penned up the calves. They placed the ark load on the cart along with the container gold, yada, yada, yada. The cows went straight up toward Beshmesh, keeping on the road, lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right nor to the left, and the Philistines followed them all the way up to the border of Beth Shemesh. Well, here's the deal. They were watching to see what was going to happen because they were interested to know, is this God or is this a coincidence? And that is a picture of the entire world. When you say, well, I'm a Christian, they want to know, is that real or is that a coincidence? You really got something going on? or not. And the fact of the matter was, when they saw what these cows did, those cows were lowing all the way. The word lowing there means crying. In other words, the cows wanted to rescue their babies. They didn't want to have this stupid wooden necklace around their neck that weighed 500 pounds. And they didn't want to walk straight away and leave those babies. They wanted everything inside of those cows was focused on rescuing their kids. But they couldn't do it. Something was driving them. Something supernatural was driving those cows. And they were crying because they wanted to do that, but they couldn't. It was a totally supernatural event. And what happened was the cows influenced the Philistines. The cows in their action influenced the Philistines. And there's times when... I don't know about you. You ever been in a situation? You know what you're supposed to do, and then you know what you want to do? And what do we do? Well, we're lowing all the way, aren't we? We low all the way. We low all the way, and that's what they did. And you see, this is super important to understand because people in the world around you are searching for meaning. You know, they're searching for meaning. And we're telling people, we know the meaning, we have it, we've got it. We've got the meaning. Are they believing us? Do they believe we have it? Are they lining up at your door so they can hear it? You see, when Jesus went to town, they couldn't move in the streets. There were so many people. I wanted to hear what Jesus had to say, to see what Jesus was going to do. Why? The scriptures teach us that the common people heard him gladly. Now, a lot of us, nobody's gladly listening to us. They're not like, please tell us, please, please, please tell us. They're not doing that. They, matter of fact, they're like, oh, one of you. <laughs> Aren't they? We're talking about for the most part. But you see, with Jesus, it was different. And there's a reason why it was different. Jesus was an influencer. He influenced people. He influenced their behaviors. He influenced their opinions. And he influenced their actions. 
And I'm here to tell you, not because of what he did, because of what he didn't do. It's what he didn't do. And this is where I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you in to rethink how you're doing things. See, I'm a consultant. I travel around the world sometimes, but all over the country. And I've got clients in 16 countries. And I'm working with people on a business level. It's business. I'm helping them in their business, in their management skills, in their leadership skills, whatever. That's what I do. But inevitably, it keeps turning into ministry. Now, I can't stop it. And it isn't because of what I'm doing, it's because of what I'm not doing. And this is what I have figured out. I want to show you what that looks like. Influence has four components. Risk, reputation, ramifications, and reward. In other words, it's high risk dealing with people, and at the same time trying to sense what's, what God's doing and then what your part in it is. That takes a lot of risk. It takes an awful lot of risk. I was with a couple in their home. Again, this is about his business. I'm there talking about his business in New York City. And he said, I want you to you know, profile me and I want you to profile my wife, which is something that I do. And then I talked to them about how they're wired and this and that. So they invited me to their home in New York. So I took a ferry from Massachusetts. I went down to New York and spent time in their home. And as I'm talking with them, you know, I could feel God just like, okay, let's, let's do it. So I look at him and said, do you mind if I pray for you guys? And they go, excuse me? <laughs> do you mind if I pray for you? Uh, what do you mean? Well, I might touch you. And then ask God to help. Because you guys are in a mess. And she says, the wife says, oh, okay. And I looked at the husband and he said, all right. Where are we going to do this? And I said, well, we can sit over there. So we went into the family room. Here's what's so cool. I sat down with them. Remember, this is a business trip. I said, give me your hands. They reached their hands out. And I took both of their hands, one in this hand and one in that. And as soon as I did, they both started crying. They just break down weeping. And now I'm crying. I don't know what I'm crying about. We're just sitting there like crying. And I just said, Holy Spirit, come. Just help these two people. Help so-and-so and so-and-so. Just, just help them. And I prayed with them and I talked with them. And I spent maybe four months, you know, on the phone with the husband and this and that. And out of that whole thing, he had been molested and raped by a priest when he was 11, kicked out of his house. There were so many implications and issues coming from that in the home. No one knew what it was. And then he, he talked with his wife and told her, his, here's my past. Never revealed it. Told his children. And it wasn't long after that. Their neighbors are calling me. Their neighbors are calling my house. We saw what you did for so-and-so. Can you help us? And I was able to minister to people and love on people. And you see, what ended up happening was the Holy Spirit came, but it took great risk on my part to take the hat off and put this hat on and, and start talking about them about some real sensitive issues. And in that process, they were just, ah. I mean, they loved it. They, they drank it up. I got a letter from her about six months later. And she said, 
We've been in and out of therapy for 18 years. 18 years. And our marriage has never been the same. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus does. And so it takes a lot of risk. I risked the reputation that I had. There were, I thought there could be ramifications, but all there ended up being was a reward. You see, if you risk it and it's something God's doing, it always ends in reward. It always ends in reward. And that's what happens. You know, I had another client call me up. Well, not before I was in Colorado visiting with them and working with them and some other people all in one big room, a bunch of business owners. And I started talking to her and I could just sense the Holy Spirit coming and I was just telling her things about herself that were accurate that no one in the room knew that I knew. I didn't know I knew it until I started saying it. And she starts crying. And there's three of them in there are just choked up because I'm just bringing up things that was going on in their lives. And... Um, uh, after I had left that meeting, I went back home to my office. I get a, a, an email from her, and she says, how much will it cost me to spend an hour with you on the phone? And I just felt like in that minute of reading that, I thought, nothing. I mean, this was a divine assignment. That's how I felt. So I told her that. And so we talked. We talked for an hour, and she was very happy and helped after that conversation. And um, she sends me an email saying, I'm going to write something about you. Okay. Well, that was like in... April. In June, there's an article about me in Forbes magazine. <laughs> Forbes. She wrote for Forbes. I didn't know she wrote for Forbes. The point I'm trying to make is I listened to the Holy Spirit in me. I, I, I helped because I felt like it was the right thing to do. I did it. And then it opens up this channel and it created a knee-jerk reaction in her to want to do whatever she could to help me. And I could have never said, I think I want to get into Forbes. I'll just call them up. That's not going to work. How does that happen? God can do it. And God did. And so it, this is what happens. You've got to take these risks. I mean, it was a real risk to start talking about things that I wasn't sure were going to be true, but I felt it, so I said it. And boy, was it. And so these are risks that we take. It's not fanfare and look at me and this and that. It's gently looking at people and loving people and thinking, what can I do to help you? And you see, and this is the way Jesus did things. Jesus was a helper. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus is uh, walking down the street and throngs of people, everybody's around. And Jesus gets there, and there's this little guy. He must have been pretty short because they bring it up. He's up in the tree, and uh, he's looking at Jesus, and Jesus looks up at him. Now, if you know anything about Zacchaeus, he wasn't a good guy. Matter of fact, people like him, nobody liked them. They were like extortioners. You know, they stole from people and lied and, you know, think of the IRS with a bad habit. <laughs> I mean, it, it, was, it was tough. And yet, he's there. What do you think he's thinking? What do you think he's thinking about himself? And here's Jesus coming, and Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, calls him by name, come down from that tree, because I want to eat at your house. Now, that's crazy. 
That's absolutely crazy. He said, I want to eat at your house. And so Zacchaeus gets down out of the tree, walks over to Jesus, gets down on the ground, because if you continue reading, it says then he stood up. So he gets down on the ground like this, and he says, I'm sorry for stealing from all those people. I'm going to re I want to repay them. Now, Jesus didn't give him a message on stealing. Jesus didn't tell him he was a rotten person. Jesus didn't tell him anything. All he said was, I want to eat at your house. Well, I'm going to assume he's the only person in his life that ever said that. Jesus had to have been the only human being that ever wanted to go over his home and be his friend. Because Jesus was so safe, all the, all, all, all the pretense, all the uh, lies, all the self-protectionism, all of it, it just fell off. And he, he, was, he probably was weak in the knees and he just fell to the ground. I mean, he's, he's thinking, this can't be happening. And he just gave himself to Jesus, just like that. I mean, Jesus, there was no effort on his part other than an invitation. Jesus is an invitation. That's what Jesus is. He's a big invitation. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 9. You see, Jesus was very different. He was a very different person. Jesus saw everybody as precious. Everybody was precious to Jesus. That's why everybody liked him. Now, there are some people that didn't like him. There's some people that didn't like Jesus. And we're going to read about it right here. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. That's usually not a good sign. You know, you don't want to stop there and go, Hey, what's up, dude? Follow me, he said to him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. Many tax collectors came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what is up with that? Now, you've got to understand something. It's how they thought. Because in the Jewish tradition, those people were not clean. They were unclean. They were not clean people. Matter of fact, they believed 
based upon their Torah, that if you took something consecrated and touched something filthy, that whatever was consecrated was now filthy. Haggai, too, will tell you that. But whatever is filthy never becomes pure when it's touched with something pure. They didn't believe that could ever happen, which is why they didn't touch lepers. They didn't touch menstruating women. They didn't touch Samaritans. They had a whole group of people that you can't be around. They had a whole set of rules about human beings that God loves that you can't even associate with that have to be put into quarantine before they're going to mess with them. But you see, Jesus didn't think that way. Jesus touched lepers. Jesus allowed menstruating women to touch him, the woman with the blood problems. Jesus let a woman who the Pharisees called a sinful woman, fill in the blank, who knows, but it wasn't good. And Jesus is sitting there allowing her to wash his feet with her hair and cry. And Jesus doesn't say a thing. He doesn't move. He's not on earth. And the Pharisees are looking going, if he only knew, if he only knew what kind of woman this was, he would never let this happen. You see, Jesus broke all the barriers in order to love the unlovely, in order to love regular people. He loved regular people. You know, psychologists have been looking into this for years. And there's a, uh, there's a term for this. It's called disgust and contagion psychology. And part of this disgust contagion psychology is something that we're not born with, but we develop through our cultures over time. And if any of you have ever had small children, they'll eat a spider. Oh my God. <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> they just pick up a roach, they'll eat it. My brother, when he was little, he opened up his diaper, rubbed it all over his face, chewing on it. It's this family story. We laugh about it now. Rubbed it all over his toy horse, modeling clay, I don't know. But he's two years old. But to him, there's nothing wrong with this. But the way my mom responded, he started getting a clue real quick. This must be not good. You see, our reactions and the way we deal with things, we say, no, you can't do that. And so every culture has this. Well, the Jews had their own set of rules, and there was a lot of things they couldn't touch, and there was a lot of processes you had to go through in order to clean yourself if you did touch it. And you see, but Jesus didn't do anything. Jesus believed, whatever I touch, I affect in a positive way, and if it's bad, I'll make it pure. It doesn't affect me. And that's what the, the Pharisees didn't understand. And you see, our job in life is not to look around at people and to see, hmm, 
Who do we need to put into quarantine? Get them to the altar and get them quarantined. You see, and sometimes without realizing it, we get what's called disgusted because of disgust psychology and because of the way we view and look at things. They've done actual surveys and tests and blind studies on this where they tell people, put on this sweater to, to people of faith. They'll do this, they'll get people of faith to say, could you put this sweater on? But before they put it on, they say, oh, a homosexual wore this yesterday and they won't put the sweater on. They won't wear it. Or they'll say, you know, uh, a prostitute slept in, the, in this hotel room and then they have the hidden cameras and they see them sleeping on the couch. They won't get in the bed. It's, it's how our minds work. You see, and what ends up happening is psychological testing proves that the human species is the only species that can show disgust. And it's the only species that can loathe its own kind. Dogs don't do that. And if any of you have a dog, just some picture things and what they do and eat, and you know what I mean. They're not disgusted. We are. And if, you, if we found a dead rat under this pew and I told you to take that outside, how would you do it? You'd probably do it like this. Right? You know, like the tip of the tail. I mean, you're certainly not going to take it like this. Huh? A dead rat? Why? Because you don't want it to be toxic and kill you. You see? This is not how we carry dead rats. But this is how Jesus carries ugly, hurting, depraved people. He doesn't do this. He does this. And it's very hard for us to fathom that. But that's the way Jesus did everything. Jesus loved people, not for what they should be, for what they are. And it's just a wonderful picture to get in your minds, Jesus dealing with all these people in the way he did it. And so... What ends up happening with this disgust psychology, if we are disgusted with this world, we're going to have no opportunity to reconcile it. I told this story this morning. I ran a home group years ago. And uh, I had two lesbians coming to my home group. I don't know where they came from. They just somehow, someone invited them. They came and they were a couple. And they introduce themselves to me and everybody else and, you know, hey, how you doing, you know. You know, after a while you start figuring out what's going on here and they get their arms around each other and you're sitting there and, you know, people, some people are getting uncomfortable. And um, I'm thinking, this is great. I never said a word to them for 11 months. I never said anything. I just kept doing the thing and we'd eat and sing some songs and look at the word and talk about Jesus and we just kept doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this, never saying a word. And then about eight months in, she shows up alone. Where's your girlfriend? Oh, she's just not into this. Oh, she stay home? No, we're, we're breaking up. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. 
kept teaching, kept loving. Well, that was, gosh, that must have been eight years ago, nine years ago. She's married now to a man, going to a church, supporting, working in a ministry there, loving Jesus. I never said word one. Nothing. Why? I didn't have to. I didn't have to say anything. All I did was love him. And then one's like, I don't want that. And the other one goes, <gasps> and that's what Jesus did. He just loved people. He loved them. And it changes people when we love them. It doesn't change everybody. But it changes a lot of them. Discussed psychology has proven that it regulates how we reason and experience people around us. When understandings of purity, sin, salvation, and holiness are regulated or influenced by disgust psychology, we unwittingly import a contamination-based reasoning into the life of the church. Contamination-based reasoning being governed by a unique set of rules is often immune to reason and rationality. In other words, we lose our minds. Because we think, if I touch that, or I associate with that, somehow I'm going to get corrupted. Paul was a Jew. He even believed that. Bad communication corrupts good morals. Your morals aren't corrupted. You abandon them. They're not poisoned. You abandon them. Because it's more fun to do this than it is to do that. So we abandon them. Character isn't poisoned, it's abandoned. I've lost my first love. You didn't lose your first love, you left your first love. That's what it says. And so these things, that's not how it happens. And Jesus proves it. So Jesus did not feel contaminated by people. So when the, the Pharisees in Matthew 9, they're looking at Jesus, why is your teacher eating with these people? Why is your teacher eating with these people? And Jesus, he wouldn't stop it. And he loved them. Now, my wife had started a new business recently where she's, you know, uh, she calls herself the declutter bug. Such a cute little name. And, uh, well, she, she got the job of a lifetime. She ended up going to this woman's house. She got a call. Well, I need your help. And we go in there. She had me come see it to help her one day. And we go in there. And on, I kid you not, on the floor, the cat litter was that deep. On the floors in the whole house with all little goodies in it. The clothes were piled three, four feet high. And on the bottom, they were wet and filthy, and it smelled so bad. And here's this poor woman in there with nobody in this house. And we're in there vacuuming like shop vac, filling it empty, fill, empty, fill, empty, fill, empty. Hairballs this big from her two cats that are her only family, apparently. And I'll never forget this. I went outside like to get a breather. My wife's wearing a respirator. 
you know, cleaning, or one of those masks. And um, I go back in there, and there's my wife sitting with this poor older woman in a chair. And she's going through these clothes, and they were bad. And some of them were new, but were so buried that she didn't even know she had them. And she's going through the clothes, sitting with her, and, she's, and I walk in there, and I don't say anything. I'm just kind of watching in the doorway. My wife's going, now this is cute. You don't need to get rid of this. We're going to get this cleaned up. She shakes it like this. And it was like shaking a bag of flour. That was the dust from the cat litter scraping for years. And she's going, oh, these shoes are so cute. You should wear these. These would look good on you. And she's talking with her. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching my wife, and I just started getting choked up. And I'm like, she made this woman feel so safe, so special, not dirty, not overweight, not, why are you living this way? What is wrong with you? I mean, something's wrong. But she was just helping her and encouraging her and sitting there and setting up these different piles and loading up our vehicles with stuff to, so she can get it donated and, and working with her and saying, boy, I bet this looks good on you and this kind of thing. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I bet this is what Jesus was like with people that nobody wanted, nobody cared about, nobody liked. And he probably just sat with them. These will look really good on you. I know a girl, I met a girl. You know what she does? She lives in Las Vegas and she, she goes all around where all the prostitutes are. And she goes in there in their rooms and where they're at. And she looks at them and says, you're so beautiful. Why are you in here? You're so wonderful. You're such a beautiful person. Do you know how much God loves you? And they're like, oh my God, nobody's ever told me that. And she pulls them out of there and she gets them cleaned up and she gets them help and she gets them on a new path for a new life and just loves these people. You know, what are we doing in our lives? We go to work. We go to work every day. We, we have people that we know. We have family. I had a minister come up to me recently. I was doing a talk and he came up to me recently and he had tears in his eyes and he said, he was a pastor, a pastor. And he looked at me and he said, my sister's gay. And I cut her off. And he looked at me and said, after tonight, I'm calling her up. I'm fixing this. I need to tell her I love her. She was contaminating him. And then all of a sudden he realized... I'm not getting contaminated. I'm missing opportunities to make her clean. You see, Jesus never missed an opportunity to help somebody and to make them clean. And what we have to start doing is rethinking how we are visualizing and what's disgusting to us and what isn't. And we have to change our paradigm. We have to change the way we're thinking. We have to look at people. Everybody is an opportunity to love. Everybody is an opportunity to uh, open up and talk to. And so I find myself in these opportunities all the time. I just got a, uh, I got about five minutes left. I'll just tell you a couple little stories that happened. I, uh, working with a client, a person, and just out of the blue, they send me this email. And in the email it says, I'm 46, this is how the email just starts. Stephen, I'm 46 years old. 
I'm not married. I just broke up with my boyfriend. I've got a son who's a senior in high school, and I can't breathe. That's, that's the email. This is business. And I called her up on the phone and talked to her for an hour. And I had another client make an appointment and from Canada. You know, wealthy, entrepreneur, you know. Everybody I talk to, if they're not making a million dollars, they're not in my roster. So these are people that are doing a lot of stuff and movers and shakers. And he calls me up and says, so you made an hour appointment, what's going on? This way he says to me, I think I'm drinking too much. I said, what? I think I'm drinking too much. And I got to talk with him for an hour. And I'll be talking to him next week again. These are people that feel safe. They feel so safe, they don't even want to talk about business. They want to talk about their lives. They want to talk about what they're going through. And there's no one they don't know who to talk to. Now, here's what's funny. I went to high school. I got out of high school. I got married. Then I went to seminary. Then I left seminary, became a businessman. Then I, left, I went to seminary because I thought I was going to be a pastor. Then I went from, you know, I did pastoring for about four years, hated it. So I did that. I did the pastor. And then I became a businessman. Then I became a consultant. And now I'm pastoring everybody around the world. <laughs> Not as a pastor, but as a consultant. And I have more opportunities in one week than I had in five months as a pastor. With people who don't know God from a hole in the wall. It is the funnest life you could ever imagine. It is so fun. I had an atheist I met at a meeting, and he called me up, and he wanted to come see me. So he flies to Boston from Chicago. Because he said, this is why, he said, there's something different about you. <laughs> He's an atheist. And I spent some time with him in my office. It, within four hours, he's, he's crawling around my floor on his hands and knees, heaving and crying, crawling around. I said, Mike, what's going on? I wanted to be a priest when I was eight years old, he says to me. And I ended up praying and leading to Jesus right, right there on the floor. And before I met him, the first thing he said to me, we sat down at lunch. I said, hi, I'm Steve. Hi, I'm Mike. I took a drink of my, I took a sip of my drink, and he goes, I think I'm going to be a Buddhist. That's how our conversation started. I said, you're going to be a Buddhist? What do you like about Buddhism? It's rather than going, oh, you know, you know, that's not good, my friend. That's not what I did. I'm like, what's intriguing about Buddhism? So I got an education, and I loved him. And it was just awesome. I, had a, uh, I used to work with the youth group years ago. I did it for about three years, volunteer. And uh, I had one of the kids come up to me and he goes, I got a question. I said, what's the matter? He goes, I went and got my hair cut the other day. And uh, I'm sitting there and uh, the person, the lady cutting my hair, she was a Jehovah's Witness. I said, oh, really? Yeah. And she's going on and on. And I, I didn't know what to say to her. I just clammed up. I didn't know what to say to her. I said, he goes, do you know what I, what, what do I do in a situation like that? I said, that's easy. Just say, what's a Jehovah's Witness? I said, now you're going to learn what a Jehovah's Witness is. You're respecting her and what she's thinking and believing and where she's coming from, and it's going to open a door for an opportunity to love her. 
I said, he clammed up because he couldn't find his baseball bat fast enough. He didn't have ammunition in his clip. Thank God. You see? Think about this week coming. Who you know, where you're at, what you're doing. And ask God to provide you with an opportunity to love somebody that isn't feeling loved or special. And then treat them like Jesus treats people. I don't care what their preference, sexual preference is. I don't care what their, their nationality is. I don't care what religion they're in. I don't care. I don't care, any about, I don't care anything about that. Because God loves people where they are, not where they should be. Remember, I thought that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And somehow when we get Christian and we come in and we, 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 we get this faith, it all of a sudden becomes us against them. And we, we take a, 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 a warlike stance. I'll leave you with this. I, 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 put a, I, I quoted Eckhart Tolle on my Facebook a couple weeks back because he had this great quote. I loved it. And somebody, a Christian friend, immediately jumped on there and said, that's one of Oprah Winfrey's new age deceivers. How can you be quoting him? What's wrong with you? Now, do you think they're going to be able to love them to Jesus? Not a chance. Not a chance. I bet you, and you can mark my words, I want to talk to that guy someday and love him. You see, that's our goal, loving people. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your spirit which gives us creative ideas so that we can love this world, not compete with it. So that we can open up our hearts and our minds, our homes, our whatever, to people. They're all around us. And I just pray right now that there would be opportunities just abounding in the lives of everybody here where they can find a moment to love somebody in a way that they've never been loved before, to touch them in a way that nobody's ever touched them, and to create an opportunity for them to open their eyes to the one who loves them more than anything else in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there you have it. God bless you. Say thanks, Steve, for such a great word uh, tonight. Um, just thinking about Jesus, um, the broken couldn't get close enough to him, and yet the religious people wanted to kill him. He was so radical. So until broken people can't get enough of you and every religious person around you wants to kill you, keep working to be like Jesus. Just we have such a, a you know, the, the Bible talks about good news. We have good news um, in a bad news world. And so thank you, Steve, for sharing that, challenging us. And, and um, uh, once again, we have an opportunity.
to give tonight. Uh, we always do this when a, a special guest comes in, and, and Steve obviously is somebody that's been influencing our men uh, this morning and uh, has ministered to us tonight. We'll do it again tomorrow, meeting with our leadership teams and different people uh, in the church. And so uh, we just want to uh, sow an offering uh, into, into Steve's life. Never says, have to pay this much for me to come. Just comes uh, for, for an offering. And so I want us to be generous in our offering um, to Steve. And uh, as you do that, um, just allow the, the Holy Spirit to continue to speak to you about what we learned tonight, what we've learned this morning for us men that were here this morning. Uh, I think God is challenging us uh, to be more like him. We, we need to be more like Jesus. That's what our world needs. Doesn't need, doesn't need more of the church. Doesn't need more of us. Needs more of Jesus. And so let's uh, be Jesus to the world. I invite the ushers to come down. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to give once again. We just thank you for Steve. We thank you for his life. We thank you for um, the challenge um, that was brought forth from your word, Jesus, from your life uh, to ours. And so, God, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, the word that we receive would find good ground, and that we'd go out and we'd live what we learned. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.